Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Duncan Smith. Great to have your company. Call Sally Round, name. It feels like springs in the air, Duncan. And it's good to hear a mental health care programme for rural people that Leah's been following is able to continue. In the show today, she'll be speaking to the founder of Rural Change, El Perium. We're turning back the clock a decade to when Cosmo was at Erewhon, a Southern Alps high country station where horses play a big part. And we visit a new veggie venture which aims to give more people affordable access to healthy food. The growers at Crooked Veggie are telling some of their customers they can pay what they like. And on the first days of spring, it's time to take a look at conditions on the land. Farmers in Northland are used to warm winters, but this year they're saying when it wasn't cold, it was wet, and when it wasn't wet, it was cold. Very little grass growth is the result of endless rain since last winter. It's made farming pretty horrible, as it's hard to minimise damage to the paddocks. People who got nitrogen on early in the month are reaping the benefits. Lambing is coming to an end in the region, and our contact reports losing only 1% of his ewes, which he says is not too bad considering. After nearly eight months of rain in Pukekohe, the last week of August concluded with fine, calm and cold days. The surface of the ground had dried, but underneath it's still sticky and wet due to the high water table and lack of drying wind. Vegetable growers are busy digging potatoes and planting crops, but little can be done with disease and lettuce crops. Bud burst is evident on the red kiwifruit variety, and some vineyards are also witnessing the same effect. People there think a genuine spring is not too far away. Carvings done and dusted in Waikato with few hiccups. Rain was a constant through the beginning of August and the groundwater's still very high. One farmer with two concrete feed pads says they've been the saving grace. But the sun's begun to shine and grass is growing, albeit slowly. And as hard as it is to believe, with the wet they've been through, drought could be on the horizon. It's been great weather for calving in Bay of Plenty. It's almost over now, which is a relief for those who've had their head down and bum up for the past few months. Many farmers haven't had a day off or even been off farm, so are looking forward to some respite moving into September. There was reasonable grass growth through August, with a little bit of rain to keep the ground fresh. Our contact says the longest she's gone without rain recently was between Christmas and New Year. It's better than it has been in Te Tairawhiti, the east coast. There's been normal rain through August and farmers are praising the weather over the past week, the first long sunny spell in a long time. It's only just drying out enough for farmers to get tractors on farm. Lambing is almost finished, aside from those in the high country who are just getting started. Lamb survival has been good for the month, although there hasn't been much grass growth. August has been fantastic in Hawke's Bay. Fine days and crisp nights have given everyone a chance to really catch up on things that need repairing. Grass is growing, lambs are on the ground and calving is almost done. Plus, more and more silt and damage is being cleared each day. Positivity is starting to return for those who've done it so tough all year. Taranaki was pretty mild and dry through August, a bit different from the rest of the North Island. The frost last week was a bit of a surprise. It's been a dream run with rain at the right time, resulting in pretty steady grass growth. The relief is around August the 20th, feed can become tight. 
Our contact says working hard at mating time has dealt dividends, with 80% of his calves born by the four-week mark. Now the challenge is feeding them. Manawatu is in the middle of a much-needed sweet spot of sunny weather. It's been a godsend, as it's been as wet as farmers have ever seen. And it was getting pretty monotonous. Lambs are loving the sunshine and paddocks have got a nicer colour all of a sudden. Those who lambed early are getting into docking now, and those that started this week feel like they've had a stroke of luck with the sunshine. Grass hasn't grown for two months thanks to the rain, so this week farmers have been busy putting fertiliser on. It's fair to say it's been wet and cold in Wairarapa, with a number of frosts keeping ground temperature low. It's pretty miserable for livestock and farmers in the midst of calving and lambing. But grass growth has been reasonable, and on the eve of spring, good drying conditions have helped. Arable farmers are hoping to put their crops in the ground soon. Nelson Fakatu has been a picture in August. Beautiful sunny days, crisp clear mornings and frost keeping the bugs at bay have all been everything wine growers could ask for. Pruning has kept most busy this month and it's now pretty much wrapped up across the district. Maintenance and mulching is the only thing left on the to-do list as the wait for grapes to grow begins. It's starting to dry out in Marlborough and some rain would even be welcome. There's no rain forecast and soil moisture probes are as low as they could be. Pruning has almost finished in the vineyards. Our contact's putting plans in place for the expected dry summer, including offloading his lambs this week to avoid the bottleneck of those trying to do so late in September when feed really runs low. The West Coast's been incredibly dry for this time of year. August started off wet, but there hasn't been rain for 10 days now. Some quite hard frosts have slowed the grass growth down, but good utilisation has saved the day. Dairy farmers are about 60% of the way through calving. Conditions have dried out in Canterbury, allowing tractors to get onto paddocks and get spring crops in the ground. Winter lambs are being sold and, despite having the best finished lambs ever, returns are $100 per head down on the previous two years. Overall, things are looking pretty gloomy for at least the next 12 months. Carving's going full steam ahead in Otago and apart from a few metabolic issues, our contact near Belclutha says his cows are milking well. Grass growth is speeding up, but paddocks are still a bit doughy, so people are holding back on doing much cultivation. Outside the farm gate, stress levels are running high as farmers grapple with new or updated laws and regulations that seek to reduce the environmental impact of farming. The drop in the predicted farm gate milk price is not helping either. After a very wet winter in Southland, conditions have finally turned a corner. The sun's been shining, the ground's firming up and pastures are changing to a more vibrant green. This week, helicopters have been busy putting fertiliser on crops and in drier areas, tractors are ripping up winter crop paddocks and some ploughing's underway too. The weather's been wonderful for early lambing, ditto for calving, which is about halfway through on most dairy farms. Our contact says the Tough Times workshops that Federated Farmers have been running across the province have been very well attended by farmers. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. You may remember we talked to Elle Perriam earlier in the year. She founded Rural Change, a wellbeing programme designed to give farmers and rural people access to counselling sessions but she was forced to pause the programme due to insignificant funding, right when it was needed most following Cyclone Gabrielle. Leah Tebbett caught up with Elle again this week, and she has an exciting update. So I suppose, yeah, lots happened since last time I spoke with you, and since then, like, through Pamu donating 12.5k, and um, we had 10k from Rural Cannon, and just 10k from One New Zealand, and, and it all just added up to um, be able to address our long wait list. So everyone got given their funding um, in the past six weeks, which is really cool. We're just incredibly grateful that Rural NZ came on board and, and, and helped support us through through that time. So um, we're very, very yeah grateful and fortunate that happened. Yeah, Rural Change is a wellbeing program for farmers where we help simplify them getting them into health professionals, uh, mental health professionals in a private practice, which cuts down wait lists of weeks on end um, via the public health system. Um, public health system is really good 
it's just um, really limited in terms of who you can select and gel with when you're engaging in a therapeutic relationship with someone. Um, you want to be able to, you know, choose and have a choice of who you see and who you connect with. And, and also um, there's a f financial limiting factor with going into private practice as well. So we're just trying to un like lift away those barriers to receiving mental health support in New Zealand for yeah those in rural communities. With the remaining funding and, and donations that are still to come in, we will open up a new round for rural change applicants. So we'll just have to see how much we have and then we can take on um, yeah a new round of, of people, which is really neat. And we know that uh, from last year's forecast, September, October, we had the most applicants all year. And I don't know if it's something to do with change of season or springtime or the pressure on people before Christmas, but that seemed to be the spike that ended up putting us in a deficit. So I'm really still, um, yeah, grateful for what's about to come in and, and people supporting us through events over the next uh, wee while. Yeah, we're just kind of preparing for and maybe another spike. Because mm, I'm guessing you would have seen a spike maybe even coming into the winter season after the significant rain events that happened across the country as well. Yeah, yeah, we did. And, and yeah, very grateful that we managed to address that wait list now and be able to prepare for this next season coming as well. Um, we don't know like what, what to expect and what we've done has had a little bit of a change up to the program to be able to give this to more people. So originally it was three funded sessions tapped at like $500 per person just because clinical psychs or um, registered professionals like can be up to $180 or $200 an hour. So what we've done is actually changed it where someone that applies now will get the one funded session but they'll also get a personalized health professional guide for their area and for their health goals as well so we've also found that a lot of people when we didn't have funding were emailing us just to be put in touch with practitioners so a lot of people were wanting to seek the help it's a, it's a matter of simplifying it and they just didn't know where to go so that was that was really special so yeah just by doing the one session and the the personalized health guide now that means we can we can give it to more people and kind of spread that funding around a bit further because with the with at least the Pamu donation that was 12,500 wasn't it how far does that sort of money go around about 100 to 150 dollars per session for a private health professional or psychologist so we can yeah estimate that would get around about 120 people yeah which is which is really epic if we're just doing one session per person now that just means we can we can open that up to more people for sure. Those in rural communities, I mean, that they have got more than just a maybe a financial or cultural limiting factors. But they're very they're very far away from cities where predominantly the health professionals are. And um, since COVID, it's been a really good thing for practitioners as they're being able to offer a lot of online help, and it's been really successful. So. A lot of what we offer is potential to see Kiwi practitioners, but just online so they can actually access it from their own home. And yeah, I mean, there's so many stresses that a farmer or someone in rural space endures in their lifetime. And a, and a lot of it is factors out of their control, which can really take a toll on the mind and body, um, whether financials, prices and, and getting a bit harder, especially at the moment. There's a lot of financial crisis going on and even harder to survive in a rural community right now. So if we can help alleviate any pressure or at all, like that's the least that we can do, really. Al Perriam, the founder of Rural Change, talking to Leah Tebbett. Every now and then we dip into the Country Life archives, and today we're going back 10 years. It's an early spring day on an isolated property at the top of the Rangitata Gorge. And Cosmo Kentish Barnes is there with farmer and horsewoman Erin Cassie. We're at uh, Erewhon Station, which is um, basically the, the name is Nowhere Backwards, um, with the H and the W mixed around. So it's at the head of the Rangitata River in mid Canterbury. It's quite spectacular where we're standing. We can see uh, some very steep mountains directly in front of us. 
what are they called? So this is the, the, the scree slopes ahead of us is the Potts Range and that's basically our, our boundary, just the this, this side of it, um, our northern boundary and the in-between mountain that's closest to us with the, with the bit of green coming through, that's Mount Carolyn, that's one of our main home blocks, one of our hill blocks and then just behind us we have the jumped up downs which are an unusual little form of small hills, little hillocks and uh, they are glacial deposits, so when the glaciers came down the river and carved out those valleys, dirt was basically pushed up um, ahead of it, and then when the glaciers retreated, the dirt was left behind. So they are um, a very distinct uh, geological feature to Erewhon, and you certainly can see it well down the valley. And round from the downs we have the Cloudy Peak Range, and behind the poplar trees, which is quite a big, big range that basically runs up through the middle of the Havelock and the Clyde Rivers which feed into the Rangitata, so, yeah. um, and it brings us some extremes of weather, but uh, <laughs> very, very nice to look at. Can you tell me about the farm? How much land do you have and what do you farm here? So we're 35,000 acres, but a heck of a lot of that is no man's land, so a lot of mountainous country, riverbed, um, areas that you, you can't graze, it's just a tough, tough, uh, tough environment. So that means we're only a, a 6,000 stock unit place, so, you know, not big numbers of stock based on the size of the place and predominantly we're a merino wool operation so we have the sh run the sh about four and a half thousand sheep for wool and that all goes on to contract with icebreaker clothing and we also have about 300 Hereford cattle that we basically run for cross grazing purposes to they'll clean out the areas where the sheep um, don't run and we have the Herefords because our neighbours at Mesopotamia and Mount Potts have black Angus cattle so open river boundary you uh, our orange Herefords uh, we know whose is whose if they get uh, mismothered in the in the riverbed <laughs> <laughs> um, and we also have the Clydesdale horses so we have about 60 we winter about 60 horses but see, from now on, with spring foaling, we'll blow out to about 80 with the new foals by the end of November. But a number of those we're selling each autumn at weaning time, and then also the odd older harness horse that we uh, surplus to our requirements. So we breed half Clydesdales as well, and, and there's a few floating around, but they've all got a job. There's no uh, panic princesses or uh, just just show ponies. They've all got to they're either working horses or making babies or um, young ones like this fella here that are growing and he's just starting to learn, learn the tools of the trade. And so you use your Clydesdales for most of the farm work? Yes we, we try to but at the end of the day we've got a, we've got a farm to run so it's the 80-20 rule you know 80% of the time we'll use the horses and the rest of the time we'll, we'll use whatever vehicle to get the job done so all the cultivation is done with the 8 horse or 10 horse team through spring and, and we don't use a tractor at all for, for those tasks um, unless we really get caught out. But that's because cultivation, you can work around the weather, you've got a bit of flexibility to when you do it. Whereas the harvesting in summertime, it's completely weather dependent, haymaking and um, binding oats. So, you know, if you've got a window and we haven't got the staff here, then we'll just have to hook in and do it with the tractor. So it's just. Um, yeah, common sense, you know, do whatever it takes to get the job done. But yes, but yes we do uh, use the horses and heading up the river for our musters um, or taking firewood up to our huts. We use the um, eight-horse team in the wagon or, or five-horse team. And the river, the Clyde River, that splits us, splits the property in half, it's quite a swift river and the horses are the best transport um, around the place, much better than a four-wheel drive. The, uh, the Clydesdale we're standing beside is dark brown and he must be six foot. He's very big, isn't he? Yeah. This one's called Monty. And we, he's, he's only a baby. He's just four-year-old and he's just put all his energy into growing upwards. He's miles too big. And the Clydesdale right behind you is a bit smaller. He's white with a grey mane and he's quite inquisitive. Very. Isn't he? Yes. This is, uh, this is Master. He's a three year old, so he's just been broken in, started two, two weeks ago, so he's just learning the ropes. Um, he's by a different stallion to this other fella, so he won't grow as big, but yeah, he's, he's got another three years ahead of him of growing, and he'll end up, you know, a pretty, pretty good horse. So we're going to put him in the wagon this morning for the first time and see, uh, see what he thinks of that. He's been in the team working ground, so he's used to the chains and um, being part of a, a work team, but um, this will be a, a new experience having to uh, yes. 
have us on the seat up high behind him. So what are we going to do this morning? So we'll go and put, um, we're going to put a three horse team in one of our um, farm wagons and then we'll cruise up the paddocks um, up to see Steve who's ploughing with the, with the eight horse team. So Steve Muggeridge, he's um, a teamster from the North Island, a good, good friend of, of ours and he comes down for uh, usually a fortnight each, each spring and works the horses. So the rest of the time Colin and myself work them but we're generally busy with the, um, the running the farm basically. Now we've just got to the shed where there are two wagons. A couple of years ago we started doing um, some tourism tourism trips with the wagons. So being, amazing for being the end of the road, we have a tremendous number of people that look at the Lord of the Rings stuff next door at um, Mount Sunday that was Kedaris in the Lord of the Rings. Oh, put that chain on, Lydia. The wagons are about at least a metre off the ground, yes, aren't they? Yeah, nice and high for um, getting through the water and over the boulders. And the higher they are, the, the easier they are to pull when they travel well. So, and we, if we if we loaded up the two wagons with um, thirty people, um, fifteen on each wagon, it's um, yeah, it's a good good load for them where we go. But climb aboard and here into back. Up we go. Alright fellas, come on. That's pretty good. He's uh, he's got used to having a couple of days working working ground, ploughing and disking, and used to the voice commands. All the horses get broken into saddle for riding before we ever do any harness work with them. They do at least a week or two and settle, so he's used to that's a familiar feeling to him. Uh, round warrior. Now we are heading up a track towards a paddock and um, even though they're not going that fast we can really feel the breeze on our faces. Yeah it's just um, just picked up again and and the, the team itself they actually it's very de deceptive I'm, I'm holding them back here to let the young guy keep up, but they actually move. The, the Clydesdales are bred to walk all day, and it's, it's quite a dag when we have our hour-long wagon loop that we take most tourists out on. And it's quite hard for them the first half, but going up the hill and away from home, and they, uh, they you know, they're working. But the minute you're heading for home, they become a handful again, really pulling your arms out, and we've got to get back to the to the food. They really are um, quite quite naughty. Now how? <laughs> Did you end up on the station here, Erin? Um, well, I grew up in Fairley in South Canterbury, which is literally just over the other side of these mountains, um, the, the snow mountains uh, to the right of us here. And I, I was lucky enough to have, um, I was always horse mad and loved the high country. And while we lived in the township, I spent my holidays and weekends with friends who had a farm similar to this that worked the horses. So that's where I learnt to um, walk up from here, Lydia. Uh, that's where I learnt to uh, drive horses. Whoa! Whoa! Just wait for the go. Um, and then, yeah, was always horse mad, and then I went teaching for a number of years, and then was lucky enough to get back into the harness horses again with some Clydesdales and, and lighter horses, and, and that's how I crossed paths with Colin Drummond, who owns Zero One Station. And, um, yeah, I've been coming up here for nearly th nearly three years now, so and living here for two, so it's absolutely wonderful. I really love being able to combine my two passions, which is the these these beautiful horses, but also the um the lovely scenery. it's it's I can't describe how satisfying it is to be able to do the work in this place, but at the horse's pace, um, you you just notice so much more than you do in a in a vehicle. Um, it's really it really is a pleasure. All right, fellas, come on. Colin has been here since 1998. Oh, and he grew up and um, was originally from Mochuaca, but yeah, so he um, certainly brought the, brought the Clydesdales here and has really um, tried to run the places along those traditional lines as possible, where you you go out on your your week-long muster and uh, all right, fellas, come on. 
working the working the horses and, and having yeah keep keeping things as much as possible as they were a hundred years ago. So it's a really um, enjoyable setup. Come on, Luke. Gosh, our young one wants to go. I'll just stop them guys here. We'll get going. Oh, all right, fellas, come on. We have um, driven off the track and we're going uphill and in the distance we can see Steve and he's doing some ploughing with the Clydesdales. Yes, yeah. So he's got a uh, eight, eight horse team there, so uh, eight horses we hitch up, four in the front row and four in the back row. Um, and in the back row he's, he's got it set up with some a couple of young ones and the way that the plough is set up is that he, um, the young ones are in there pulling pulling the plough and helping but they're not actually, uh, they're at what we call the light end of the of the swingle tree and so he, they're, they're getting used to being in the team and having the chains and doing the job but they're not having to um, pull quite as much as um, those older horses are so but they're getting used to it like, like this guy has had getting used to chains around his legs and all the all the things that a working horse needs to be able to cope with yes. this is quite a good hill we're pulling them up just it's, it's a gradual gradient but they three horses they know they're working and um, yeah this little fella he's he, he might have the goods Whoa. now tell me a bit about Steve Oh, Steve is just um, a one in a million, real cracker of a guy, genuine. Um, the horses love him. Um, he's very kind, kind hands, and and um, and he's just got this fantastic laugh and big grin. And you, whenever you go along and see him, it's you just can't help but uh, get caught up in that bit of infectious enthusiasm. So this is what he does. Oh, uh, yeah, he's uh, it's his job. Yes, yep. He um he also does some you know working on whoa look, uh, working on dairy farms and bits and pieces to. You know, help pay bills, but um, this is his great love. So he's, um, yeah, a lovely guy, and we're really lucky to have, have him as a friend. All right, fellas, come on. Hi Steve. Good. Nice to feel that sun on oh, the back. Yeah, it is actually. It's quite. <laughs> it's it's um, quite pleasant. But yeah, I'd like. I'd rather have it like it was this morning. It was a bit dull and a bit drizzly, but cooler for the horses, but cooler for the team. You know, um, it just makes it a hell of a lot easier on them when the weather's a bit cooler. Um, wind is draining, isn't it? Well, yeah, the wind really, is very uh, draining. Yes. Not only for you, but you the, the horses as well. Yeah, just just look like how it's, the sun's bit of clouds gone over the sun, like this would be bang on, really. Mm. <laughs> how do you rate this plough that you're sitting on? Oh yeah, yeah, she's she's Colin's got it running very very well. Um, yeah, it's just sitting the furrows beautifully. Um, yeah, I'd be. I'd be happy to take it into a competition, I think, yes. because it's gone pretty well, actually. And Erin, do you do some of this as well? Oh, I do um, the disking and the harrowing and rolling. I, uh, I'm still learning the art of ploughing. It's, uh, it's something that's uh, it's a slow process and, and incredibly frustrating when you're learning it, like I have been over the last uh, year or so. The uh, dark art of ploughing. Uh, <laughs> I never had any appreciation of just how hard it was until I had a go. And there's just it looks like a really simple uh, implement and simple setup, but there's just the most minor adjustments that you can make to your your land wheel, your skeiths and, and the whole lot make a huge, huge difference. So you change one tiny wee thing and um, and it, it changes the, the end result um, dramatically. So I, I get what's, I still suffer what's called ploughing rage and I'm, because uh, <laughs> the only time I ever seem to be doing ploughing is at, at competitions where there's people watching and it's just not a good environment to be uh, trying to learn things. How important is it to go straight? One of the arts is to go straight because if you start off crooked and it just makes it hard, it just makes it hard for everything, the, all the top work, the disking, everything, it just, yes. if you can start off straight, it's easier on the team and, and, and your mind too, obviously. <laughs> is it frustrating if sometimes you look back and there's one kink in the line? Definitely, without a doubt. <laughs> and you can get that quite easily if you 
hit a couple of stones and it jumps the player up in the air and yeah. shoots it sideways. Do you have to have shoes on the horses to do this type of ploughing? Um, no, this is paddock work, so they could do this unshod, no problem. Some of them you'll see have got shoes on, but they're ones we're using a fair bit in the riverbed in the wagon, and they, uh, you know, they just chip their um, hooves like nobody's business if, you, if they didn't have shoes on. Um, and some of them you can just see this uh, filly in the back. She's got, uh, she's put her foot down, but she's got a, a spike sticking out, and they're a bit of an experiment we've got for working in ice to give them a bit of grip going up the hill, um, kind of like uh, mountaineer spikes. Um, for climbing so it's a bit of an experiment with um with uh, some winter shoes so even going up here it's a bit of a rise i'm not sure of the altitude what it would be but it's reasonably steep and you know i've noticed some of the horses that haven't got shoes have been slipping on the cow pits <laughs> so how long will these clydesdales be working this paddock today for yeah eight hours we we we, we, we sort of get going in the morning oh, i don't know sort of eight half ass roughly and um Work till lunchtime and then we all go back to the stable for a feed, me included, but I go to the house. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, come back after lunch and sort of get another, yeah, work till five o'clock, half past five, just, yeah, get another four or five hours in. So, yeah, it's great. What would you put the horses on when you go back what, to the farmyard? Yeah, what we do, we um, unhook the swinger tree off the plough and hook them onto the, the wee sledge there so we can get a bit of a ride ourselves and, um, yeah. Just keeps all the chains nice and firm when you're driving the team back when there's so many chains that could get tangled up. So, And Erin said that you're from the North Island. Yes, yes, from Wire Rapper. Um, don't hold it against me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I do love coming down here. It's, it's, it's bloody great. It's just unfortunately this year I've been a bit busy myself, so I'm, I'm only able to spend the week here. It's yes. Have you always had an interest in Clydesdales? Yes, um, my late father... He was the last guy to have uh, Clydesdales in the Taranaki. We used to run the whole farm with it. And then when he passed, up, passed away in 85, I just kept it going. You know, they're a big, big passion of mine and, you know, a big part of my life, really. Okay, guys. Steve and Aaron are unhooking the plough. Going back to the farmyard with Steve and his team of eight Clydesdales, and we're on a sledge that works quite well, doesn't it, on the grass? Yeah, it does. Yep, yep, it certainly does. Just like I was saying earlier, it gives the horses a bit of weight to pull, so you're dragging all the chains and getting them all hooked up everywhere. Is this one of the more spectacular farms you come to? Oh. <laughs> You're not wrong there. <laughs> I tell you now, I, I never get sick of the view, that's for sure. You know, no matter what the weather is, I yeah, I never get sick of the view. It's it's quite special, really. Um, big country like this. And I've been coming for a few years now. I'm not sure quite how many, but it's been been quite a few years. And uh, the first time I come here, I sort of, yeah, um, uh, didn't really feel like going home. <laughs> it's pretty special. <laughs> How many Clydesdales do you have at home? Uh, I have eight. You know, I'm just on a wee, wee small scale, not like Colin there and here, but you know, like I say, I've been with them all my life, and yeah, they're a big part of, big, big part of my life. The old horses, really. Uh, unfortunately, two of my kids were pretty keen on the horses, but all three of them, unfortunately, live in live in Australia now. So, uh, but I'm, I'm, that's not going to hold me back from keeping them going to as long as I can live. You know. <laughs> Uh, you know, if, if sort of the thing is, if it's not going to work out when I think I'm going to bloody pop me clogs, if you know what I mean, I, I'd rather just sell them all up and, and knowing that you know they've all gone to good homes and that sort of thing, rather than wondering what's going to happen. You know, so uh, we'll just see what happens. You know, I hope to have 20 or 30 years left in me yet. So. <laughs> what is it you like about Clydesdales? They're a very majestic animal. I, I feel they're very majestic, and um, we, we breed it. We breed every couple of years. We don't breed every year, but just 
but the breeding side of it's good too, you know. Um, always like to breed from good work ethic mares, you know, so it keeps coming down through the line. And, and you know, they're an amazing animal to me. Uh, gentle giants, people say they are, but yeah, there's, you know, yeah, don't get me wrong, 99% of them are, but you get the odd one that sort of can be a bit titchy. When you're doing ploughing or other work on a farm, do you sometimes drift off into your thoughts? Yeah, obviously, yeah, you do, you know, um, because um, it's very rewarding, whether it's sitting on a plough or just uh, just behind a team of horses, it's pretty special, something about it, you know, and um, you actually have time to think about things, whether it's the, the missus at home or your kids in Aussie or thinking about which stallion the next me is going to go to and you know the next horse to break in yeah it's 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 quite amazing really that was ploughman stephen muggeridge cosmo was talking to erin cassie at erawan station and as erin said the name actually means nowhere backwards hi my name is des i live beside the uara river and you're listening to country life on RNZ National. What do you do if you don't have any capital, but you want to get into food production? Food production at its roots, hands in the soil, growing stuff. Well, you could take a leaf out of the book of Jonathan Mines and Tay Luke Hurley. They've started growing vegetables for sale near Otaki in the Horofenua region, north of Wellington. Their business plan is unconventional in many ways, noble even. They have no capital, no land of their own. And get this, they'll allow some of their customers to just pay what they can. I've come to Crooked Veg Otaki and I'm with John and Tay, showing me round. We've been here for about what, four months and we have about 400 metres worth of garden space producing a little bit of food but only at the beginning stages. Jonathan's just ahead and we're just going into the polytunnel. Oh it's warmer in here. It's it a cold chilly winter's day out there isn't yeah. it? What's going on? Once we're in under the plastic the southerly hits. A good time for John to explain the trials going on in this tunnel house. We're growing at a hand scale. We don't use a tractor or, or any fossil fuel implements uh, and so we're at a big disadvantage compared to compared to the efficiencies of a large tractor so what we can do is we're at a human scale so we can grow things in a more intricate way so we're, we're growing here with sort of reasonably conventional spacing for for our chard and our kale and our cavolo nero but we're growing rocket uh, puck choy and spring onions in between those uh, which are maturing just before we start getting harvests off our kale and, and chard. The idea is that the faster-growing veggies provide much-needed cash flow before the slower crop harvest, and the mixed planting improves the soil. When we're on a small acreage, that's two months where those, where those beds are not producing an income. So if we can take an income by selling 30 bunches of puck choy off that bed before we're taking a harvest, that bed is more productive. Uh, and that, that's kind of the stuff that tractors can't really do at the moment. Um, not using a tractor is partially a choice to stay away from fossil fuels. It's also, we don't have any capital, so... so yeah, that's a big issue. Yeah, it's a big <laughs> issue. So, so, so doing, you know, we've got to find ways to be smarter doing it by hand. The pair behind Crooked Veggie were city kids. John grew up in Christchurch and Nelson and has worked and tutored in film. My mum tried to get me to help her in the garden and I just went and played video games instead, you know. So farming or growing vegetables is kind of something that it came to me in my 20s, I think. Um, yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely like surprised and confused a lot of people in my family and friend groups. He met his partner in this venture, Tay, while working at a market garden in New Plymouth. Tay grew up in the suburbs there and studied music before she realised she'd rather have her hands in the earth. I love getting dirty, I love seeing all the worms and bugs and stuff. I love seeing mushrooms, just, just, you know, just all the, the, the life. 
and I don't like that not everyone can afford this kind of you know organic regenerative food so I kind of want to I want to get food to the people that everyone needs it but to everyone yeah yeah the squally showers move on and we head out to check out the rest of the operation. Tell me a little bit about this um, land, John. Um, yeah, so we're, we're, we're renting land. We house with a lot of landowners and eventually found a situation that suited where we wanted to be and the landowners seemed like we had the right or compatible politics and compatible interests in how we manage the land. Um, now, so we actually probably need to stop here because you didn't just hassle a lot of landowners. No, OK. <laughs> that's, <laughs> what happened? That's, a, that's an abbreviation. Um, <laughs> well, we, we, yeah, again, we couldn't afford to buy land, so we needed to, needed to find... And we suspected that around New Zealand there's, a, there's enough people with far more land than they need um, sitting unproductively, and it, it could be used... In, in better ways, whether that's in sort of environmentally motivated vegetable production or if it was being put back into native trees or if it was being put back into to wetland. Um, so there's a lot of people who, who have more than they need who don't necessarily have the ability to manage it. Uh, so we were, we were trying to find those people, but those sorts of people don't sort of hang out in the same spaces as... <laughs> as as us grubby young people who who want to do something on the land, um, so so we put word out amongst other growers we know, uh, just kind of all of our networks. We made a spreadsheet of everyone we knew who might have a connection to a bit of land. Um, we also put word out through Organic Farm NZ's Facebook page and a group called Village Agrarians who have a website which. Uh, has a land matching directory for uh, people looking for land and people with more land than they need. And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you now have a patch of land out yep. here near Otaki. Yes, yep. The owners have 10 acres. Um, they're managing about nine of that. Um, is split between an organic pear orchard, uh, a heritage rose nursery, uh, and then they're rewilding a wet patch into natives. Um, so maybe a quarter of the property is being replanted in, in native trees. They don't have a plan for what was happening on this paddock. Um, and so when they heard we were looking for the bit of land, they were like, oh, maybe maybe you could do something with this, this little patch on, our, on the corner of our property. And how big is it? It's, about, it's just under an acre, so about 3,900 metres. used to be an old, an old orchard. We're moving towards the main growing area, some of it under tarp to kill weeds and prepare the soil for spring planting without the need for tilling. And John explains the philosophy behind their unconventional veggie box plan. I guess our dream, and uh, we're not putting all our eggs in this basket, but the thing that we're trialling in the spring is a pay-what-you-can CSA, so basically that looks like a veggie box. Um, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Um, so within within Ortucky we'll be distributing vegetables on a weekly um, harvest. Oh, so people will take, take a share of our weekly harvest um, uh, and commit to, to taking a share of that for, for 13 weeks over the season, over that season is our trial. And we ha we'll have a suggested price of, of what we need to cover our costs, but we're, we're allowing people to pay what they can. Um, and so that the idea behind that is everyone deserves access to healthy, fresh food that's grown in a way that doesn't destroy our environment because we have, we have to be growing food in a way that doesn't destroy our environment. Is it Everyone, the case that veggie boxes, you think, are expensive at the moment? Are they I only don't, accessible? Actually, I actually to... don't think veggie boxes are that expensive at the moment. I think supermarkets are pretty expensive for what they're offering. Like You can get an organic veggie box at a price that's pretty competitive to the supermarket and it's seasonal, higher-quality food and you can know where your food is coming from. Even then, like if you're, if you're a low-income family, everything's crazy expensive at the moment. That's probably more to do with our housing costs than anything. But um, that's a whole other political conversation that, that I'm so not qualified pay, to talk about. Pay as you can. Yes. It's, it's, it so it's sounds a, like a noble idea. Is it going to work financially? We'll find out. <laughs> uh, we, we'd like to think it can, but as, as I said, we're not putting all of our eggs in that basket. We do do some convention. We will be doing some conventional wholesale and have a couple of other outlets as well. If it works well, then our, our dream is for that to be our. And, entirety of our, our outlet is, is local veggie boxes on a pay-what-you-can model. Um, and so we're, we're asking, I guess when we do that, we're asking for a fair bit of community buy-in, right? Ortaki's a, a mixed crowd. There's, there's, there's a bunch of people of means who've retired here and there's, there's a lot of 
there's a really large like income gap across Autaki, uh, and so we're we're asking people, um, you know, if you're able, maybe you could pay a bit more and support one of your neighbours or one of the other people who's who's involved in getting veggies from this farm, um, as a as a means of spreading mutual aid. You may think it sounds pretty out there, but John says it is being done elsewhere. People in New Zealand think that's pretty radical. Um, but I, I've seen it, we've seen it with some farms in America who, who offer their CSA veggie boxes on a pay-what-you-can basis. That, that really kicked off for some farms through COVID where a lot of families were struggling and a lot of other families were doing all right. They, they asked their, their CSA members, um, the people who were getting their veggie boxes or veggie bags, if, if some of them wouldn't mind paying it forward to, to the families who couldn't afford, afford the cost to keep getting veggies every week. So that's happening in America, it's happening in, in places in Europe. Um, we see it happen in other industries. Like in Ōtaki, there's a there's a barber that runs on a pay-what-you-can basis, and you know they manage to provide haircuts for people who can't afford them while while making a wage. You know, um, and and a lot of a lot of the community is 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 happy to pay it forward when when they understand that doing so is supporting someone who who can't norm- normally access a fairly basic service. Now, John, you also live quite close to where you're cultivating the vegetables. Yeah, about ten metres away. Um, I, I was living in a it's not here anymore in a, a leaky van that a friend's mum lent me, which was very kind. Um, I've upgraded to a. Portacom. Um, and which, there it is over there. Yeah, yeah. And there's a small caravan nearby as well. Yeah, yeah. So Tay was living in that caravan as well. So those are slowly, one day when we're paying ourselves a wage, we'll be able to move off the land and live somewhere that has power and running water. Um, at the moment, it's it's quite good to be close to the project. Um, I suspect in a year or two, I'll probably, probably be a bit tired of waking up and looking at all the work I need to do. But yeah. You're obviously really committed to this project yeah. um, because it, it doesn't look that comfortable for a no. start. <laughs> no. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, but, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, have, I have a little bit of solar power now. I can charge my phone and run the lights if it doesn't rain for too many nights in a row. It's, it's, it's getting there. It's getting more comfortable. You've yeah. set this up as a registered charity. Yeah, yes, yeah, which, which is a slightly funny legal structure, but New Zealand... New Zealand, we don't have a legal structure for for social enterprises, so it's sort of the closest we can get. And so, yeah, we, we've we've done that. Um, as I said, like capital is a is a big challenge for us, and so, but we are we're trying to do this socially radical thing of the pay what you can veggie box. Um, so having charitable tax status for that work gives us a little bit of breathing room. It also gives us a little bit more space to apply for funding um, and some of the grants that are available in these sorts of regenerative and agricultural and uh, social change spaces. So, so it opens up the ability to, to work with things that don't necessarily produce income in a way that a typical farm would, um, and sort of opening up the farm as a, as a space for public learning. And Now, when you do need money for infrastructure, mm. I mean, what do you do? We will be applying for some grants for, for a little bit of um, infrastructure projects. We'll, we'll be launching a crowdfunding campaign soon. Um, we'll be asking community and friends and extended networks um, for a little bit of support getting in those sort of bigger one-off infrastructure costs. Because there at will the be mo- a lot involved, won't there, in, yeah. in setting this up? Yeah, because so at the moment you haven't got any sort of structures, any, any yeah. beds? I mean, the stuff that we're, the stuff that is built, um, you know, I was at the timber recyclers today and we carve it, we get timber from the dump and I get into dumpsters and, and pull stuff out to build things out of scraps. Um, but I would, I'd really like to not be doing that for absolutely everything. Um, We've only been here four months, but people sort of know to give us a call if they've got some things that they're getting rid of. Um, but you know, we're not we're not builders. Um, we're learning this as we go, and it would be yeah, it would be great to pay like the right contractors to do the work that they're good at, and we can focus on gardening, which is what we're good at. And when will the veggie boxes start? Uh, we, we'll be launching that in sort of mid-ish spring, so so late October, early November, um, and that's that's a collaboration with a, another veggie grower. Jack Leeson, who runs Ahu Ahu Garden out of uh, the Otaki College. So, will you be able to feed weekly? Yeah, so uh, we'll be doing it. We're doing a we'll be doing a weekly veggie box with him. Yeah. How much produce do you think you're going to be able to get out of this piece of land? Um, so we we think in the long run we'd be able to produce uh, enough food for 100 families on a weekly basis. Um, we'll be trialing the pay what you can CSA on a 25 family basis. Um, that's a whole different way of distributing food for us, and there's a lot of there's likely a lot of teething issues, and 
uh, we're optimistic about uh, bringing in the community support for, for that project, but a lot of people are quite cynical about it, understandably. It's a, not a normal business model at all. Um, so, yeah, we're not, we're not putting, as I said, we're not putting all our eggs in that single basket. Um, yeah, we're doing a little bit of wholesale, a little bit of, like, kind of higher-value uh, niche crops for, for some restaurants and bits and pieces like that. For the founders of Crooked Veggie, proximity to the capital is all part of the bigger idea. If I, if I talked about changing food systems five years ago, people were kind of, like, confused at me, but I, that, that seems to be something that's part of the everyday vernacular now. And, and I guess Wellington being, like, centre of political well, politics in New Zealand's beehive and it's where a lot of a lot of like activism spaces are happening. Um, I don't know if people who live in the city who are who are crying for, for food system change necessarily know what that looks like. So we we wanted to be kind of close to where where potentially being a visible project might be able to influence some change in some people, you know. Probably we need a whole social restructure to make proper food affordable to everyone, but I don't know how to do that, so this is what we're trying to do. And if you're a grower with no land or a landowner who'd like to link up with growers like Jonathan Mines and Tay Luke Hurley, villageagrarians.org has a directory where you can sign up. We'll put a link to John and Tay's crowdfunding page on our webpage. And you can go there too for more info on the stories you've heard today and photos of the people behind the voices. The address is rnz.co.nz slash countrylife. You can also subscribe to the Country Life podcast. It's on any podcast platform. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for your company. Bye now. Kakite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.